0: Great Patient One, Chapter 23, read by Achan Suchito and Nick Scott After a rejuvenating stop at Sauti Achan and Nick are now heading via Kapalowattu to Lumbini in Nepal, where their pilgrimage started. However, the passports that they received after the robbery, whilst having visas for Nepal, have none for India. This means that crossing the border could be a problem. Chapter 23 The First Goodbye
1: Achen Chensuchito It was time to get on the road again. In the heart, time is measured with departure. Sometimes it's the casual daily, see you later. Sometimes it's a reluctant letting go. Sometimes it comes through being violently dragged away from the company of friends, family, and the good earth. Even in a little over three weeks we had grown accustomed to the humble monastery and the Jetavana, and fond of Venerable Somaratana with his quiet concern for our welfare. Venerable Nimalo had left on March 9th and gone to Sarnat to get his passport before entering Nepal, Having made provisional arrangements to meet up with us at Lumbini. Three days later, we said goodbye to Bunty after an early breakfast. The rest of the tiny resident Sangha turned up to see us off. Bunty seemed a bit sad and gave me his last jar of marmite and some vitamin pills, with a few disjointed phrases about wanting to help our pilgrimage. We promised to write and offered to support him if he came to England. Nick made further donations, and we fitted our packs back into the disused ruts in our backs and set off through the Jitavana. In that spring-like mood it seemed right to stop off at a stupa on the main road toward Balrampur, which, although long since covered with earth and vegetation, was built on the site in which tradition has it, the Buddha ascended from the earth to visit his mother, in the Tusita Heaven realm. The story goes that he spent an entire rain season up there teaching the Abhidharma to her and to attend Davers. devas. I didn't think my mother would be interested in the Abhidharma, but the example of filial piety was not lost on us. We climbed halfway up the mound slope to light incense and recollect our mothers with gratitude. It was good we did that. Receiving a letter from my brother later in Rampur, I opened it to learn that only in the morning of February 13th my mother had died. There was also a card from the Sangha at Amrawaddy expressing their condolences. They had attended the funeral. I sat down. and Then I read the letter a few times. She had died peacefully in her sleep. The nurses had looked in at 1am and she was asleep. Two hours later her position was unchanged, but there was no breathing. Well, the peacefulness was good. I looked inwardly for an emotion or a sign. All was silence, but I knew I needed to say Goodbye. We had planned to take a train towards Kapilavatthu to make up for the time that we had spent in Savati, and allow ourselves two full months in Nepal. With the descent of the silence, I hardly noticed the slow train ride. It was just that unrelenting vision of India, even as we left it. A mass of bodies, bodies stuffed in and under the seats, hanging out of the doors, Bodies jammed in the windows as people forced their way through into the packed carriage. Darkness came, and eventually we arrived at a station near a town called Norgar. Near the station were a couple of small Buddhist temples set up for the convenience of pilgrims. One was Burmese, the other an outpost of the Mahabodhi Society. This night I wanted a shrine where I could do some chanting for my mother. The Burmese place would have made space for us by evicting a family from a room, we declined. The Mahabodhi temple was surrounded by a wall. The gate eventually opened, and we entered a tiny shrine room with a dusty Buddha image sitting behind two large alms bowls, each with a sign advocating donations, one in English and one in Hindi. The resident monk, an Indian, received us with a broad, ingratiating smile, and asked us if we had any gifts from England for him. Nick replied in the negative, but offered fifty rupees as a contribution to the temple for a night's stay. The monk recommended a larger donation, which would be of greater merit. It was very important to make merit, and one hundred rupees would be more suitable. My silence went dark as they haggled. What a sight to be leaving India with. A bhikkhu wheedling for money with simpering platitudes about our spiritual welfare. Nick explained that he had only 100 rupees and his friend was a fellow bhikkhu and ill. He didn't want to give it all and be in a situation where he couldn't provide support. To cash a traveller's cheque would leave him with a wad of unconvertible Indian rupees when he got to Nepal. Wasn't generosity supposed to be a free will thing? My mind froze. Something in me was for getting up and out of this place. But when Nick took the register and pointed out that 50 rupees was the standard donation, the bhikkhu reluctantly recognised that we would not gain much merit. A lay attendant led us to a nearly bare, unswept room. In the morning... "'I had unfrozen enough to act from direct instinct. "'It was before dawn, but I was for getting out. "'The gate was locked, and the surrounding wall "'about three metres high on top with broken glass, "'but that was nothing. I wanted out. "'With Nick behind me, I got a foot in the gate's rails "'and used that somehow to scramble up and over the wall. "'On the other side, the road was empty. "'Away, away, down a long, wide road.' Out of India. When it was light, we stopped for tea to warm up. My head throbbed. I felt sick. Then the road became wider and lined with trees, some blooming with red flowers. A young man walked alongside us for a way, talking an incessant jumble of high-speed disconnected sentences. The land stretched on either side as far as the eye could see. The light was bright, but soft. India was saying goodbye. And it expected a response. Now to be very patient, to pass the test at last, no matter what. So I gave the young man all the kindness, all the attention that I could. And eventually bid him farewell, on behalf of it all. Perhaps I couldn't make it in India, it was just too much for me. But there were no hard feelings. Years ago I had been attracted to India because of its profound spiritual literature, the vastness of its thought, and the beauty of its music and painting. This time I had mostly seen the low life, yet the simple devotion, the unquestioning generosity, and the respect for religious people were humbling. I blessed the place for its persistent vitality and its ability to accommodate opposites, its contradictory serenity and passion, its harmlessness and violence. What other place could be so obsessed with cleanliness and bathing and yet so innocently filthy? Where else the cows and monkeys roam the streets recycling the waste? Here, the problems that are innate in civilization, including matters that Western societies manage to push under the carpet, dump in the sea, or export to other countries, get exposed. Here, every latent impurity that ease and convenience can leave dormant gets dredged up from the bottom of the heart and shoved in your face. India was a great teacher. But right now, I had to get out to get to Lumbini for the 16th, my mother's birthday. India had taught me a little about Dharma.
2: Nick
1: Scott
0: it wasn't how I'd expected to be leaving India when sitting in the Jetta Grove. There the future seemed rosy and I'd been looking forward to crossing the border and to saying goodbye. But I should have known that India was not going to let us off so easily. The news of the death of Ashnessuchita's mother, followed by that awful stay in the Mahabodhi Vihara, left a bitter taste. At least it was good to be walking again. The road was bordered with neat lines of young trees, their trunks painted with three wide bands of faded red, white and red. Their shade alleviated the heat. While we were in Savarty I would noticed that sunrise was getting earlier and sunset later. Now I felt the result. I really appreciated those trees. The change of season also meant the fields we were passing were now full of mature wheat, their heads and upper leaves on the turn from green to golden, so that they rustled in the breeze. Most of the water from the rainy season had gone and the birds had been condensed from the wider landscape to congregate at the few remaining pools. One we passed contained a dozen elegant black-winged stilts poking at the mud. Soon before all the water dried up, such migrants would be leaving, returning north to their nesting sites amidst the tundra of Siberia. We stopped for a breakfast of tea and sweet biscuits in Norgor town, three kilometres on from the Vihara at Norgor station. Then we headed north on a road that seemed far too wide and well paved for the small amount of traffic. I realised why this was when we got to the fork and the road to Piprawa, where we were heading. The other direction, where the good road went, was signposted Lumbini, 35 kilometres. So this had been the route for pilgrims and tourists to Lumbini, until Nepal had closed the border crossing. Things began to fall into place. Visitors must once have stayed at Norgar and crossed into Nepal for the day. Now they had to go the long way round and so stay the night in Nepal and spend their money there. The flow of Buddhist pilgrims through Nulga had dried to a trickle and that was why the monk had been so desperate to extract every last penny from any visitor. It was also at this junction that I began to realise that my plan to cross quietly into Nepal between Piprawa and Lumbini and so avoid being sent by the border officials to New Delhi for new visas, might not be as easy as I'd assumed. There was a police post and checkpoint just ahead on the Lumbini Road, and there were likely to be more at the border. The last thing I wanted to do was sneak round a border post. Stefano had told us the story of a friend who tried to do that when he overstayed his Napoli visa he decided to do it at night and went to great lengths, dressing himself up as a local, dyeing his face and wrapping an old scarf about his head. He had stolen quietly through the fields on a moonless night and was coming round the back of the Nepali border buildings so that he could register on the Indian side when in the darkness he would fallen into a ditch with the sewage outflow. His cry as he realised what he would landed in "'brought one of the guards out to investigate, "'and he was caught full beam in the guard's flashlight. "'He was so caked in sewage, though, "'that the guard didn't want to come near enough to see who he was. "'The guard just assumed he was some drunken peasant "'and told him to get lost. "'The pip road was smaller, "'a raised mound with a narrow strip of asphalt on it, "'crossing the fields.' The landscape was empty and more open, reminding us of Nepal. There was no tree shading the road, and so when we arrived at the Sri Lankan temple at 10am, we were hot and sweaty. The temple was small, square and new-looking, a pile of bricks in front indicating it was still being built. Yet despite the newness, several mud homes had already coalesced around it to make a small huddle of buildings amidst the fields. Inside we were warmly welcomed by Venerable Jinnaratana, a Sri Lankan bhikkhu in his forties, who was pleased to have two Westerners, one a bhikkhu, come to stay. He and his companion, a more junior Indian monk whose name has gone now, made quite a fuss of us. They would have given us one of their rooms. There were only two in the temple, had we not insisted that we were happy on the roof. The generosity was a great relief after Nolga. It was interesting to see a pilgrim temple in the making. Up until now, they had been long established, sometimes started so long ago that the founder only remained as a statue in the courtyard. Founders still in residence had grown old and had settled back into the buildings and amenities that had arisen around them. But here at Piprawa was a young bhikkh still making his mark in the Holy Land. Venerable Jinaratana had begun his temple only ten years before our visit. The shrine room, he told us as he showed us around, had been completed just the previous year. Next they were building an accommodation block for pilgrims. That was what all the bricks were for. He was friendly, helpful and likeable. He told us which ruins to visit that afternoon, and their significance. He responded to our intention to walk directly to Lumbini, not with surprise, but by announcing he would find out the route. He had never done it himself because of the border, but he knew it was possible. He was an energetic and busy man, with little time to listen to anything except practical details. I suppose they were all like that, these founders of temples in the Holy Land, That afternoon it was my turn with the dysentery, so although we managed to make our way round the ruins, it was slow going, and neither of us, for very different reasons, took much of it in. All I remember were two landscapes of old bricks, one of which was the remains of a big stupa, the other was an extensive mound that was supposed to be the foundations of Kapalavatu, the town where the Buddha grew up. This was the second Kapalavatthu we'd visited on the pilgrimage, the first we walked to from Lambini. Having now journeyed in nearly a complete circle, that Kapalavatthu was now just across the border in Nepal. Although neither of us cared then which was the real one, I since found out more about them, and the story is worth repeating. It was the German archaeologist, Fulrah, who first proposed the Nepalese site. After his discovery of the Ashokan column at Lumbini in 1896, he obtained a commission from the Nepalese government to search elsewhere in their Tarai districts for Kapalavatu. Despite extensive excavations at Tilarakot, which destroyed much of the remains, and an utter conviction that it was the site, he could find no conclusive evidence. When another archaeologist made a surprise visit towards the end of the dig, he discovered the workers inscribing pre-ashokan writing on some of the bricks. Furha had descended to forgery to prove his case. Meanwhile, just across the border in British India, a local English landowner had excavated a large stupa and discovered a relic casket. He suggested that the site at Piprawa must be Kapalavatu. That was when the scholars started to squabble. It was claimed that the distance and direction from Lumbini, given by Farshien in an account of his visit in 406 AD, matched up with the Indian site. Xiang Seng's account of his visit in six hundred and thirty five AD was said to indicate that the Nepalese site was the correct site. With time the consensus seemed to plump for Tilarakot, but perhaps only because Nepal cared more. They only had Lumbini, while India had all the other Buddhist holy sites. Then in nineteen seventy two a re-excavation of the Piprawa stupa found two more relic caskets further down, containing ashes. And then an excavation of a nearby monastery exposed bricks, engraved Kapalavastu pikshu Sangha. The Nepalese did not take it well. In the words of an Indian archaeologist who'd made the discovery, the news gathered a blinding storm around it, and a number of scholars mainly from Nepal, took recourse to the most unbecoming language. And it was after that that Nepal closed the local border and forced everyone to go the long way round. So that is how the Nepalese couple of Vatu ceased to be visited and became the sleepy place with a closed museum we had found. But I inclined to the view of Vincent Smith, the archaeologist, who discovered Fuller's forgery? With a true Englishman's sense of fair play, he suggested that both sites might be Vatu. The explanation resides with a story that matched the sombre mood we were in because of Ajahn Sujito's news. How the Buddha, towards the end of his life, had to stand back and let his hometown be razed to the ground by Vidudabha, the new king of Kosala. Kosala was then a powerful state and the Buddha's kindred the Sakyans of Kapilavastu were its vassals. Viduḍḍapa's mother had supposedly been a Sakian princess given in marriage to his father. But in reality because the proud Sakyans had felt the upstart Kosalans were beneath them they had sent a daughter that one of the chiefs had fathered with a slave girl. The king never suspected and made her his foremost queen. The truth only emerged later, when, with the irony that life always seems to manage, he was to be succeeded by the son he had by that queen, the proud Vidudaba. Having grown up wondering why he never received presents from his mother's family, Vidudaba visited Kupolavatu while he was a prince. He found out the truth when one of his soldiers, returning to collect a forgotten spear, found a slave washing the seat that Vidudaba had sat on, with milk and water. The son of a slave has sat on this seat, explained the slave. When Vidudaba heard this, he vowed revenge. Let them pour milk over my seat to purify it. When I am king, I will wash the place with the blood of their hearts. The Buddha did what he could to protect his kindred from Vidudaba. On three occasions, when the new king set out with his army, he met the Buddha just inside the Sakyan kingdom, sitting under a small, shadeless tree. Vidudaba invited him instead to cross the border into Kosala. Where there was a big shady banyan. But the Buddha replied, Be not concerned, king. The shade of my kinsman keeps me cool. The king understood and returned to Kosala. However, when the king set out a fourth time, the Buddha knew that the fate of the Sakyans could not be averted and remained away. Vidhudabha vented his wrath and killed all the people he found without caring whether they were man or child. That must have been heart-rending way to say goodbye, even for a Buddha. The town was later re-established elsewhere by the survivors, and it was this Attu that received one-eighth of the Buddha's ashes. So while India's Kapalavatthu might be the new one with the stupa, Nepal's could still be the original one where the Buddha grew up. But then I'm an Englishman with that sense of fair play too. Back at the Vihara we were temporarily raised out of our listless state by Venerable Jinaratana, who wanted to discuss the details of our departure. He'd been to see his contacts in the village and had directions for two routes to Lumbini. A guide had been arranged to lead us along the first part, and he had already decided which of the two routes we should take. He reminded me of Rabbit in Winnie the Pooh, forever busy organizing his unreliable friends and relations. As I struggled to get my mind focused on what we were supposed to be doing, I felt like one of the more hopeless friends. And Ajansi cheetah was even worse. He would just stare absent-mindedly out of the window. After evening puja that night, we lay on the roof under the stars. Wafting up from the mud huts around us, along with the last of the smoke from the evening fires, came the evocative sound of the murmuring of female voices. Women, I imagined, lying in bed beside their husbands, going over the doings of the day. Occasionally, I could hear one of the men grunt or speak a short sentence, but mostly it was that soft murmuring. It brought to mind the woman I'd just effectively said goodbye to forever. I'd sent her the letter when we reached Balrampur, composed at the end of the retreat in Savaty. It'd taken me a year of trying, and four months of the pilgrimage to do it. But then part of me didn't want to. I'd loved her, and now lying there, I could see how much she'd meant to me. It always seems to be like that. It's only when someone's gone that you can truly say how much you care. Perhaps in a way we were both in India getting over women, With Ajna Suchito, it was the nuns. For the previous eight years, he'd been in charge of their training. It was a job that fell to him when the community had only monks who'd been trained in Thailand, but women who wanted to become nuns. It was a long, painful lesson for all. He likened leading their regular lessons on their rules to being at the helm of a ship in a storm with the emotions of their reactions pouring over him while he hung on grimly to the wheel. One of the nuns told me later that she regularly wanted to kill him. But there was also a deep affection. The first generation were now senior enough to take charge of their own training and those that followed, and they now looked on Ajahn Sichita with great kindness. At the last post office... There'd been a long letter for him from one of them. For much of the pilgrimage, women and relationships with them had been a regular topic of conversation. I suspect it always will be for men, but with the death of his mother, we weren't having much conversation. Archargentu Cheto lay there silently that night, looking up at the stars as I fell off to sleep. Next morning, the first light filtering into the sky before dawn was greeted with calls to prayer from a nearby mosque played over the usual crackling tannoy system. Then there was a splutter, and a megaphone attached to our roof also started up, blasting out a stream of Buddhist paritta chanting. We were already at the table downstairs for an early breakfast, but even there it drowned the conversation. It was Venerable Jinaratana's answer to the Muslims, who, he told us, made up 90% of the local village, part of his drive to found a Buddhist temple in the Holy Land. Soon after that we left, setting out early so we were less likely to be seen crossing the border. Our guide led us to the start of the path, and then we were on our own, wandering along a dirt track and looking out for Nepal, we no idea how we'd know when we got there. We walked on a raised earth mound, winding through a vast wetland. Some of it had been planted with paddy, but mostly it was swamp and open water, with the occasional stunted tree on an island of dry land. Everywhere there were birds. Stalks and saras cranes waded amongst the reeds. Herons flapped off, startled by our approach, various ducks slipped out of sight into the vegetation and a big palaces fish eagle quartered in the distance. In the east the sun had just risen and everything was picked out with the intensity that the low morning light can give. It was beautiful and a really wonderful place but we couldn't stop. I was concerned someone would find us before we crossed into Nepal we halted further on inside some woodland in a discreet glade. While Ajahn Shuchito sat in meditation, I stole back to take another look from the bushes at the wetlands. I'd reckoned we were over the border by then, but when we came out of the trees onto open rising ground, there, in the middle of nowhere particular, was a stone post marking the border. There was no one at all to be seen, let alone border guards. Further up the slope, we turned east, heading for Lumbini, across a land even less developed than at Piprawa. It was undulating and covered in wheat, rippling in a warm wind coming from the north. There were only a few distant villages. A mile pallid harrier, grey and white, hunted low over the wheat, flapping slowly back and forth beside us. And beyond, in the distance, were mountains again. We'd not seen them since we'd headed south four months earlier. The air was now too hazy to see the distant snow-covered peaks, but we could see beyond the forested foothills, the first crests of the higher ranges. at Chansuchito.
1: Saying goodbye was never easy. A mother India wasn't about to let us go without a little sport, Maya, a little play. First, there were the wetlands. They were unreal, just the kind of thing to get Nick so spellbound that we were moored there for an hour. I sat and waited, letting go of the foreboding that despite making an early start, we were going to conclude the morning in the time-honoured fashion of stomping through the heat to arrive somewhere we would have just enough time to stuff some food down. Ah oh, yes, and as we left the woodland and came onto a cultivated plain that was open to the blazing sky, Nick began to wilt. He slowed up, made it to the first and only tree and sank down. All the energy of the wetlands was gone. The spell had lifted, and the reality of his queasy guts replaced it. The play had shifted, to expose the futility of our expectations. Nick, the crusader, was gone. Now his bushy beard hardly seemed to fit him. He looks like some sad little man wearing a fake. The irritation in me melted to see him. What could we do? Just sit here, under this one tree, in the middle of a plain, waiting. Over to the east the horizon was smudged with trees. That must be Lumbini Grove. A wild mood caught my heart. Could I pick him up? Could I carry him? The possibility of actually accomplishing something that i had set out to do in this country... The dazzling possibility that I might be in charge of my destiny just once fired my nerve endings. Her mother wasn't about to allow that. I had to stay with the way it is and give up the ideas. Nick. He was real enough. Now it was his turn to be morose and unresponsive, dear Nick. Actually, there was nothing to be done. This is where we belonged under a tree sick going nowhere and trying to make peace with that. This is what 1,000 kilometers of walking had been for preparation for understanding the human condition. My frustration gradually evaporated and eventually we were allowed to continue. Nick hauled himself up and we moved off in silence, two tramps tottering across the earth to their illusory horizon. The trees were, of course, not Lumbini Grove. However, amongst them was a tiny village with a chai stall. After another rest in the shade, and duly fortified with tea and biscuits, some life came back to my friend. Destinations looked likely again. Lumbini was only two kilometres away, they said. But wait, they meant Lumbini village, not Lumbini grove. And do you really think two kilometres is a distance? In Mayas country, it's just bait for expectation. Because when we arrived at Lumbini village, which was a Muslim marketplace, Lumbini grove was only two kilometres away. And so we concluded the morning by stomping through the heat, this time to arrive at Venerable Vimalananda's temple with about five minutes left in which to stuff down some food. Some other bhikkhus were there eating. An obvious elder knowingly waved us to get down to business as rice and noodle soup were hastily set down in front of us. Wasn't this where we began? A thousand kilometres ago? The place was much the same, although our four-month journey seemed to have made it smaller. The manager was the same, still saying, No problem, no problem, as he took us to the same room and helped us sweep it out. The abbot, Venerable Vimalananda, was the same, bright and bird-like, though slightly subdued by the presence of an elder monk. Venerable Anuruddha Mahatera. Venerable Anuruddha, a bhikkhu of 54 reigns and the third most senior bhikkhu in Nepal, was the abbot of the renowned Ananda Kuti Vihara in Kathmandu. In fact, his father, Venerable Dhammaloka, had founded the place. Not that he was anything but relaxed and friendly, he took an interest in our journey and even talked to us a little on Dhamma. Venerable Vimalananda stayed in the background and occupied himself with administrative details. However, over the subsequent few days, I helped him to write a letter to a supporter in Sri Lanka, in his crowded little room. He fished out a bag of Sri Lankan coffee and some tea mixed with coriander as a gift. He was happy to be helpful, and delighted that we were intended to spend some time in his temple that was being built in Tanzania, a few days' walk to the north. With characteristic energy he set to, writing a letter to his brother Chatra Raj Shakya, a prominent Buddhist in the town, and, he briefly informed us, Never know he's here, in Tilorakot. We had arrived the day before the new moon on March 15th, and March 16th was my mother's birthday. The silence in the back of my mind felt pleased. The manager had loaned us a paraffin stove, no problem, no problem, and with the tea or the coffee and a mild night by Queen Mahamaya's tank, there could be no more suitable occasion to pay my respects and send some kindness towards my mother. The night was still and quiet. Long streamers decked with prayer flags ran from the temple across the dark water to the Bodhi tree where I sat. After the puja, Nick moved off. We met up again at midnight in the room for coffee. A few hours of meditation had helped me digest a lot of emotions and memories. There was some pathos and regret. It must be difficult for all mothers to have their sons grow up and no longer be sweet little boys who depend upon them. My relationship with my mother didn't seem to have progressed since I was eleven. We'd never had an adult conversation. I changed into a stranger who had no interest in the norms of family life, didn't want a career, didn't know what I was going to do, was always going off to some foreign country for months on end. And for me, she was always either dismissive or uninterested in things that were passions for me. My studies, my music, my friends, my attempts at a personal philosophy. Yet I always wrote to her, came back from Thailand and stayed in England to support her. And whenever people offered me something, I chose flowers to send to her. As for her... Even though she would not pick up the baited conversational gambits on Buddhism that I carefully laid, she knitted gloves and baked cakes for the Sangha. And once, when I was visiting and she thought I was out, I peeked through the window to see her sitting bolt upright with her eyes closed, obviously attempting to meditate. Ours was a secret relationship, separated by our lifestyles, it was as if we couldn't acknowledge that we cared, face to face. So we had to do it indirectly. At 3am we had the morning pooja by the flickering candle against the bode tree. The night must have been chilly. I suddenly felt quite shaky as I spread out my piece of paper with a dedication to my mother on it. A membrane around my emotions started to stretch under the pressure and grow thin. There was my mother's name and my note. May you forgive and be forgiven. Bless and be blessed. Realise peace and spread it to all beings. In gratitude for your kindness, patience and support. Your loving son. I got halfway through it with a shivering running up my chest and something trembling in my stomach. Then a great wave burst through, filled my throat, stung my eyes, and I was sobbing. For a lot of things, for the lack of communication, for the wrongness of not being there when she died, for the way it is on this plane of separation and death, and for that ignorance that keeps us apart in hard-skinned ego structures that yet cry out for companionship. Maya, she was wringing me out again, dumping my mind down that black hole of unknowing and impotence. but not so bad this time. Nick's silence was calming. I drew a mug of water from the tank and chanted the reflections on the sharing of merit. Then I lit the paper and let it burn, the embers dropping into the mug of water while we recited the verse on impermanence. All compounded things are impermanent having the nature to arise and cease, having come to be, they must surely end, and in their passing there is peace. I sat there until six a.m. Then the uniform night began to disrobe into colours and forms summoned by bird song the earth came back exhaling a cool mist it was time to move again where was there to go i wandered north with my mug in my hand only a few minutes walk away was the flame of eternal peace though in daylight it wasn't so bright as at night instead its stark brilliance was dissipated illusion again How bright is the flame, as bright as the darkness. How clear is truth, as clear as the ignorance it reveals. And peace, what is that? Something mobile and flowing, yet always resting on one spot. Something whose heart is eternal, yet whose forms are transient. Maya. The flickering of form. I dip my mug into the flames, passing it through them three times. That's how much you can hold in the world of form. Better to burn up utterly with abandonment. I return to the temple, still not interested in sleep. So I spent my time washing my robes and peacefully sweeping leaves in the grounds of the temple. We'd said goodbye to Nick the strong and Suchito the impervious but I had a feeling that Mother was going to stay with us. Even when you've said them goodbyes are never as straightforward as that. Some things just keep coming back.
0: Nick Scott This visit to Lumbini was much more sober than the last. I again spent much of the time alone exploring the area and the wildlife. But this time it was more out of a wish to give space to my companion rather than out of excitement at being somewhere new. His mood flavoured the whole visit. There were new things to discover though like a loud call that was everywhere at dawn and dusk. It sounded like the slow, stuttering creak of a door in a horror movie. To begin with, I thought it was frogs, big bullfrogs, but it was coming from the low bushes and clumps of grass, a long way from anywhere I'd expect frogs to reside. Eventually I crept up on one of the grass clumps, the noise stopped, and in a minor explosion, a black partridge broke cover. It was spring, and the partridges were the most obvious of the birds now calling to establish breeding territories. Those I'd heard at Savaty were calling here too, like the green barbet, the coppersmith, and the crazy brain fever bird, while the wetland birds I'd been watching last time had mostly gone, along with the shallow pools that they'd been feeding in those areas were now flowering grasslands. The holy site had changed subtly too. The annual winter pilgrimage had passed through while we were away and the place was now strung with lines of new brightly coloured prayer flags instead of a few old tattered ones. The pilgrims would have come in waves, each of the different nationalities in sequence. The Thais visiting the holy places in November and December the Tibetans and Japanese in midwinter, and the Sri Lankans in February and early March, the choice depending on their climate at home. Now the plains were heating up, the pilgrims were gone, and the Bodhi trees, from which the flags were strung, were changing their leaves, dropping the old ones while unfolding small green replacements. But some things were the same. Venerable Vimalananda still bustled about. The two lads in the small makeshift cafe in the yard had the same bored air as they waited for visitors while listening to the same tinny Indian pop songs on their transistor radio. The office workers at the Lumbini Development Project were still on strike and sitting behind a desk outside the office when I went to visit. The stakes had been raised, however, and there was now a big sign hanging from the desk proclaiming hunger strike. Not that the two slightly portly men behind the desk looked like they were suffering much. When I asked, they told me they were all taking turns at refusing food. They were each doing six-hour stints, hardly a gandy-like fast to the death. I'd called by to inquire if there was somewhere I could buy a tree, for Suchito to plant for his mother. They directed me to the project's nursery round the back. This was two huts surrounded by rows of young trees, the area fenced off with netting. Here there was no strike, but then the two men watering the trees were local Indian peasants, not educated Nepalese down from the hills. Although they had enough English to grasp what I wanted, whether they understood why I wanted a tree, I'm not so sure. Anyway, they would take no money, though I did manage to eventually give them a tip, and I returned bearing two potted flowering trees. Ajahn Sajita was really pleased. He spent much of the afternoon deciding where to put them and plump for the kitchen garden of the Vihara, where they would be looked after. He reckoned his mother would be pleased by the choice, as she liked kitchens more than temples. I gave the manager instructions on how to tend the trees, and I used some of our little remaining money to make a donation to the monastery and to provide a special meal in his mother's memory. They bought a dozen eggs, and I helped with the cooking by making a Spanish omelette. Meanwhile, Suchito drew a picture of one of the flowers as a memory. Then we made plans with Venerable Vimalananda for our departure. He said it would be no problem for us to visit the Nepali side of the border to get our passports stamped. He understood why we were doing it too, and he used it as another opportunity to lambast government bureaucracy. There was a bus in the morning we could take, and from there we could catch another to Batwal, which had a Theravada Vihara, where we could stay. That would save us a day's walking, much of which we had done already and make it easier to fit in a stop to Tanzen. That was his hometown and having heard on our last visit how much his new temple project meant to him, we'd offered to stop off there. Tanzan was due north in the mountains on the road to Pokhara. We were supposed to be walking east before turning north across the mountains and end our pilgrimage at Kathmandu but it felt a kind thing to do. That afternoon we also went to visit the adjacent Tibetan temple. We had for some reason not bothered on the last visit, but this time we wanted to pay our respects. Perhaps it was a coming climb into the Himalayas. Typically Tibetan, it was a square block of a building, its plain shape compensated for by the vibrant maroon and yellow of the exterior paintwork. Inside it was more gloomy, lit only by the open doorway and smelt of old incense, rancid butter and the many Tibetans that had shuffled through. The season of pilgrimage being over, there was just one nun in a corner clicking at a rosary and mumbling her prayers. We lit incense and placed them in a bowl overflowing with the stubs of previous sticks on the dusty altar beside the used butter lamps and the various bowls of other offerings. Beyond them the images rose, a Buddha Rupa, various exotic Bodhisattvas, and behind them the back wall filled with images of past teachers in this lineage, each in its own dusty glass box and each with a small white scarf about its neck. It was all so cluttered, but yet still powerful. The nun told us that the temple was founded by Diogo Khyentse Rinpoche, the massive old monk who'd led the puja we'd attended in Bugaya. The Tibetans were the last to come to the holy places before the dark ages of Muslim destruction, and my favourite account is by one of them. He is called Dharma Swamin in Sanskrit, but is known to the Tibetans as Chag-Lontspa and he set out from Tibet in 1236. He spent over two years in India, surviving many adventures. There were now hordes of Muslim soldiers roaming the country, looting and killing, and in many of the places he visited the people of the towns were hiding in the jungle, fearing further visits. The monasteries he passed had mostly been destroyed and the monks had either been killed or had fled. When he finally got to Bugaya, the town was deserted, but a few days later they began to return. The local Raja came out of hiding in the forest on an elephant bedecked with jewels and accompanied by 500 foot soldiers. He also recounts having to withstand the temptations of an impudent low-caste woman, the numerous tigers, bears and snakes the thickness of a man's thigh in the jungle and the gigantic crocodiles of the Ganges that regularly ate ferry passengers. He visited Nalanda, from which most of the thousands of monks had fled and where there was much destruction. There he became the disciple of an old learned monk a monk he later saved from a Muslim attack by carrying him on his back to a hiding place. He left Nalanda to return home carrying the scriptures he'd managed to collect. Then at the base of the Himalayas, when he too was about to leave India, he was struck down by a fever, malaria I'd guess. He was delirious and came so near to death that his landlord urged him to go to the charnel grounds so that he could die there. But he refused, and after several months, recovered enough to move on. He said goodbye to the plains, and climbed slowly back into the mountains. With the end of his account, the record of Buddhism in the Middle Land also comes to an end. There are no further records from pilgrims, and although the faith probably did hang on in a few pockets... It eventually died out completely. From what we'd seen while there, it seemed unlikely to return.
2: Achen Suchito
1: Venerable Nimilo had arrived from Tilorakot later on in the morning of my mother's birthday. He added to the chanting with which we blessed the two trees that Nick had acquired for my mother. We'd be together for a day or so before we all headed off to Birahawa. There, having officially entered Nepal, Nick and I would head north of Butwal, Tanzen, and the mountains. Nimilo's horizon was the flat land to the south. I admired him for travelling alone. He meant he had to survive on random support that would occasionally house him for a few days and put him on a train with a relative's address in his pocket, stay in whatever viharas and ashrams were open to penniless mendicants, adapt to situations that he came into without much security. It seemed much more the authentic way in which a bhikkhu should fare rather than this strange coupling with a layman. However... In terms of an unveiling one's psychological tender spots, it didn't come close to the practice Nick and I were being put through. Venerable Nimolo could set his own pace and destination. The people he stayed with were always new and glad to see him. He didn't have the continual impingement of the same person struggling with his own difficulties, for whom one has long since ceased to be a source of interest or inspiration. And it showed... By this time, Nick and I had worn into each other like a tough foot on a tough shoe. That meant a lot of directness and a kind of relaxation. We didn't have to be anything for each other. That was an immense advantage of being honest with oneself. The wonderful result was actually a quiet sense of mutual respect and a growing disengagement from our individual viewpoints. Not that it was smooth sailing by any means. We left Lumbini on March 17th in a last minute scramble to get onto the roof of a bus. It was chugging off down the dirt road as we swung ourselves and our bags up the ladder on the back. That took us to the border town and onto another bus heading towards Butwal. We alighted a few kilometres before the town. It felt proper to walk, even though, as usual, it took longer than expected. Our way was to come staggering in out of the darkness with Nick looking for a place to get the soul stuck back onto his sandal and me trying to find out where the Budh-Bihar was from the locals and getting incomprehension in return. Back here again. Unconnectedness felt right for our pilgrimage. That was the mode of practice we kept returning to. But now I stopped thinking there was something wrong with it. Mother India taught me to leave such thoughts behind. If you go to Lumbini, have a look in the kitchen garden of the Theravada temple. There should be a couple of white blossom trees there, and the manager promised to look after them. Just as I was scrambling onto the bus, I looked over there, saying to myself, You'll be all right there, Mum. I didn't want to leave. I felt the mood welling up again. Fortunately, the bus jogged me back as I had to get seated or fall off the roof. The wheels kicked up a cloud of choking red dust and did the leave-taking for me. Goodbye to all that. To that in me which could be called somebody's son. To whatever I hoped or worried she might feel about me. And to whoever I think I am. Maya a fitting name for the Buddha's mother. What else could nurture our awakening better than this painful world of appearances, of identities, separation and regret?